0: Welcome
1: to Saga Thing, where we used to put the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John, And I'm Andy. And this, well, this is the ninth episode of our <laughs> Njall Saga Marathon. Remember when this was our summer saga? Yeah, I do. That was back in the <laughs> summer of uh, 2016. Remember some of our uh, banter in previous episodes about being done before Christmas? Uh, sadly, I do. We were way off. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, now January of 2017. Oh, God. Uh, We we might as well have written a book on y'all in the time it's taken us to get this far. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, But on the bright side, we've now got as many episodes on y'all as there are planets in the solar system. Uh, There are only eight planets, John. Remember Mm. they kicked Pluto out of the club about a decade ago. Yeah, I heard. I just
0: choose not to accept it. Nine episodes, which means that according to the PLU coding system for produce, this episode is organic. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I've always
1: considered this a free-range podcast. There you go. That's not what organic means. No, it's not. Nine episodes, (laughs) which means... Well, one for each life of the terrifying black cats of Thorolf Sledgehammer. Oh, nice. A deep cut from Vatensdala Saga there. Yeah, it's good to get that back in there. Mm -hmm. Also, nine episodes means that we're now supposed to give gifts of pottery or leather to each other. Uh, What, like an anniversary gift? Okay. Yeah, I think Uh, so. So how about I get you a set of
0: clay figurines of the Nielsens? Because because they're all going to be putting a fire to finish
1: them. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's uh, truly one of the worst you've ever done. You should be ashamed. Yeah, I'm I'm not proud of it. Oh well. Oh, and of course, nine episodes means that we've now got one for each of the worlds of Norse cosmology, which is kind of cool. Oh, good. A segue. I was hoping we'd find one of those. Yeah, I don't know if that's a segue, but uh, close enough. Go
0: ahead. So this is a big episode, uh, not in terms of chapters to be covered necessarily.
1: But an importance to our story. Yeah, but, uh, we've been leading up to this for the last couple of episodes, and, uh, this is when we'll finally reach the attack on Njal's farm. Okay, but, uh, first let's put on our
0: fedoras and recap the last episode to explain how we got here.
1: Sure, lead the way.
0: Last time on Njal Saga! The Njalsons' alliance with their foster brother, Hoskald Brainson, was tested when the dastardly Maul Valgensen whispered
1: lies about Hoskald in their willing ears. That sounded dirty.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, the Njalsons attacked and killed Hoskald, an act that would gain them many enemies and break the heart of their father Njal. The Njalsons then sought support to fend off the lawsuit from Hoskald's family. Some friends proved true, but others were outraged by Hoskald's death and refused to back them in
0: court. What a fine, how do you do? Meanwhile, Flossi Thordeson, a well-respected man, took up the suit for Hoskild's death after his niece, Hoskild's widow Hildegun, shamed him into seeking revenge. Flossi's supporters outnumber the Njalsons, but his case
1: collapses due to more conniving from the enigmatic Mord. Confronted by a legal impasse, Njal maneuvers the assembled chieftains into brokering a negotiated settlement to save his sons from further shenanigans. But Flossi finds a pretext for rejecting the settlement and insulting Njall's manhood. When Njal's oldest son Scarpe Heather responds by calling Flossie a troll's wife, the whole thing breaks up with anger building on both sides, and everyone awaits the final conflict that now seems inevitable. So,
0: in essence, the Njalsons have made a dangerous group of enemies now, and this episode is going to be about
1: the consequences of that failed settlement. And the most obvious consequence is that Njal and his family are going to face the worst fate that the sagas have being burned in their home. Mm, I'd love to give you grief for spoiling that ending, but honestly, this saga is usually given
0: a full name of the saga of burnt Njal. So Mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that building suspense around
1: Njal's fate isn't a big agenda item. Besides, the saga itself keeps mentioning the burning, which in a way does help to build some suspense. Mm -hmm. If you remember in the last episode, we saw several newly introduced men referred to as future members of the Coalition of the Burners. I mean, yeah, it's not supposed to be a secret that this is coming. Yeah, in fact, the author is making careful use of foreshadowing techniques all the way through the section we're reading for today. Uh huh. What <laughs> you need? To, that what? seemed like
0: a fairly obvious setup for you to explain what's happening this time out. I was waiting for you to hit the button. We have a button.
1: A storm is gathering around Njal's house, as Flosi and his band pursue blood vengeance for the slaying of Hoskold Threinsen. Word of a surprise attack finds its way to Njal's ears, prompting an icy standoff between the Njallsens and Flosi. Clearly outnumbered and with little hope of surviving a direct attack, Njál urges his family into the house where they can better defend themselves against the coming onslaught. But with the house well defended by the Njálsons, Flósi is left with a difficult choice. Abandon the attack and accept the humiliation of defeat, or set fire to the house and finish what he started. In this episode, we examine the actions of Flósi and the Burners, Review what happens inside the house as Nyol and his family fend off the flames as best they can, and set the stage for the aftermath of the burning. Why does Nyol want to go into the house? What heroic deeds will Scarpe then perform as the house burns down around him? Will anyone survive? And what's with all the chickweed lying around near Nyol's house? Find out, as Saga Thing continues its quest to cover Nyol's Saga! Chapters 124 to 132.
0: Now, as we just mentioned, hints of what's coming have been scattered all over. The saga author hasn't exactly tried to hide the fate of Njal and his family. And that's not surprising. Most medieval Icelanders would have come
1: to this text knowing about the burning of Njal because it was a significant event in the country's history. And I think one of the things we have to be really careful about in this episode is that line between the history of Iceland itself and the history that's offered by the sagas. Sure, absolutely. Uh, we've talked about this here and there, but
0: now we're getting to one of the most spectacular events in the saga. And somewhat paradoxically, it may also be one of one of the most historically verifiable events in Njal's life. You mean his death? You, you know what I mean. I know, that's why I said that. Uh, our old friend, Jonas Christensen, remember him? Uh-huh. Uh, he's a skeptic about the historical content of Njal's saga, but even he acknowledges that that old and trustworthy sources confirm that Njal was burned to death at Birdforstjal along with members of his household.
1: Well, I mean, that's not really in dispute, right? Mm-hmm. There, there there, are excavations at the site that show that there was a farmhouse there and that it burned to the ground sometime around the early 11th century.
0: Yeah, yeah, there has been, yeah. Uh, but how precisely we can date that burning is disputable. And not everyone seen it, it sees it as definite proof that the events of this saga are meaningful reflections of what happened historically. Uh, Robert Cook, uh, who edited the most recent translation, gets pretty definitive about this. He says, The author of Nell's saga was not trying to write history. He was using events and persons known to him, but going far beyond them with his own inventions and interpretations. There was a man named Njal who was burned to death in his home around the year 1010, and a man named Gunnar who was killed by the men who attacked his home. But they are not the Njal and Gunnar of the 13th century Njal's saga.
1: I see, so Cook is a like a burning truther.
0: Oh, oh! I wish that were the case. <laughs> it'd, be, <laughs> it'd be fun to launch conspiracy theories about what
1: Njal's saga is covering up. Hmm. If anybody has any ideas about that, let us know. Okay, but uh, returning to the point, Cook's taking things pretty far, but it's in keeping with the literary tradition side of Nihal Saga readers. It still acknowledges that the burning itself took place, but there's, you know, some confusion about what exactly was going on. Sure.
0: Cook's pushing a book prosist line here, but he's not an extremist. Uh, We know the burning happened as much as we can know anything from this period historically.
1: And we should be clear that it's not just the event itself that matches up with the archaeological record. Some of the seemingly minor details of the burning fit as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Emily Lethbridge writes about this on her site, The Saga Steads of Iceland. When Njals' farm was dug up by archaeologists, various artifacts came to light. On one occasion, a kind of white powder was found. And it was explained as the remains of the skur, or the the whey yogurt, that Bergthora had called to be poured over the flames. Mm, Skur
0: is delicious, by the way. I highly recommend it.
1: Not really the point we were going for there.
0: I know, but I'm getting hungry. Uh, The thing is, we can look at the historical or the literary record and find support for this story. There's actually a lot of supporting framework within the saga tradition for the story more or less as Njal's saga tells it. There are references to Flosi the Burner in Khrisni's saga. And remember, we saw Singed Kari mentioned in Greta's saga. And Christensen cites several other sagas that mention one or the other of them. Uh, plus, there's Snorri Sturluson's Prose Edda. Oh, you mean the, uh, the infamous Snorri Sturluson. Sorry, the infamous Snorri's Edda, which includes <laughs> a verse supposedly composed by Bernd
1: Njal. Hmm. And nearly all of those sources predate Njal's saga. So ultimately, what we have here is an event with a historical basis and some corroborative detail and a fair amount of literary invention. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's about right. So in other words, this is a typical saga thing equivocation. Of course it is. All right, folks, it's time to tell the story of what
0: happens to Njal Thorgerson and his family. Get your popcorn ready. Part 36, Signs and Portents.
1: Now, as we begin this section, Njal's entire clan has retreated to the homestead at Bergthorsfall to await the attack that they know will be coming.
0: Right. Even those who have obligations elsewhere elect to stay with the group. So njal has got a fighting force of nearly 30 men.
1: And those aren't just any fighting men. It's Scarpe the Nyalson, a terrifying figure. Kari Solmunderson, a famous warrior. Grimm and Helgi, accomplished fighters. Mm-hmm. And they've got Njal to advise them. I mean, this isn't going to be an easy group to attack. Well, and their enemies know it. Flosi Thorderson, the de facto leader of the opposing force, calls together his
0: supporters and makes them all pledge to see the revenge against Niall's family through to the end. And he warns
1: them that that end is likely to be bloody. Well, it's not like his followers are begging him to reconsider either. Mm-hmm. I mean, the largest power block within Flossi's followers are the six Sigfusins and their sons.
0: Right. Now, for anyone who's having trouble remembering all these names, I don't blame you. But the Sigfusins are the uncles of Gunnar of Litherendi. Their oldest brother, Thrain, and Thrain's son, Hoskuld were both killed by the Nialsins. And the remaining members of the clan want blood.
1: Yeah, and there really are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. The six brothers have grown sons now as well. Lomby Sigfusson's son Gunnar speaks up at the meeting and even says, Nothing will please the Sigfusson clan until all the Njalsens are dead.
0: Yeah, that young man needs some anger counseling.
1: Yeah, well, he's got a personal issue here. Mm-hmm. Young Gunnar is one of the guys that Scarpathen caught and released during the ambush on Thrain Sigfusson.
0: Right. But again, he's a relatively little fish.
1: And he's swimming with big sharks now. Well, all the little fish and big fish make an agreement to stick together until the Njolsons are dead. And the author provides a list of men who are part of the group. But it's honestly... It's too many names to list out. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It really is. (laughs) It's enough to say that 20 men are named as being there. And each has several supporters and friends who will join them. Mm -hmm. There will be an occasion later on to deal with each of them in turn. But for right now, the overwhelming number is the point. There's a lot of them. Yeah, and quite a few of them are chieftains, in fact. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it speaks to something that we've been talking about. Nyall's insistence on going his own way and not getting involved with the traditional power structures and chieftaincies, it's kind of created a lot of resentment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just the Nyallsons' killings that's created this unstoppable force of enemies. There are men here who want to punish Nyall and company for their independence. Yeah, I like that point. Um,
0: although it's interesting that one chieftain who's not part of this plot is Morth Valgridsson, who's been mm-hmm. behind all the machinations against Nyall's family so far.
1: Yeah, here's a fun fact. He's
0: going to end up allied with the Njolsons. Yeah, which is just bizarre, but it makes sense yeah. if you follow Morth's storyline. Remember, Morth goaded the Njolsons into killing Haskell Drainsen and then deliberately wrecked the case against them by starting the suit himself, even though he was part of the killing.
1: Yeah, like we said, he's kind of a jerk. Yes, he is, but he's also painted himself into a bad corner. Nobody puts Morthy in a corner. Oh, oh, please don't do that. Uh,
0: <laughs> what I- it's terrible. What I'm getting at is that in order to destroy the case against the Njalsons, Morth outed himself as one of Hoskalt Thrainson's killers. Which means his brief alliance with Flossi is toast, since the Sigfussens are on the warpath against everyone involved in that
1: killing. Right, and so Morth's not going to be a part of the attack on the farm, this mm-hmm. is kind of the point. Uh, even though this was ultimately his goal, he's finding that his fate is actually tied up with the Njalsons rather than with their enemies.
0: Right, so Morth's not at Flossi's meeting. But we should also say that not everyone at the meeting wants the Njalsons dead, right? I mean, there are at least a few
1: men there with some seriously divided loyalties. True. Uh, there's the oldest living Sigvason, Kettle of Mork. Mm. Uh, he's married to Thorgerd Njals' daughter, which puts him in an awkward position. But he has made his decision. He's going to stick by his brothers against his brothers-in-law. Although he's going to try to be a voice of moderation among these conspirators. Right. It's not just him, though. In our last
0: episode, we mentioned Ingjal of Keldur. Uh, Ingjald's married to Flossi's niece, Throslog, but he's also the brother of Hrodni Hoskald's daughter. And therefore, he was the uncle of Hoskald Njalsson. This is Njal's illegitimate son. Right. So Ingjald is following his in-law, Flossi's leadership, but that makes him an enemy of his own nephew's family and an ally of the family who killed his nephew. And he's agreeing to this attack? Well, I think we're supposed to understand that he doesn't see himself as having much of a choice, He's literally surrounded by men making a blood oath to commit a mass killing. Backing out now would almost certainly mean death. Well, that's not going to be much consolation to Njall's family when they see him. Well, yeah. And even though everyone present to swear the oath agrees to keep it secret, there's really no way to stop the rumor mill of the Icelandic countryside. So, Ingjald returns home, but it isn't long before
1: his sister Hrodni shows up at his house, and she's not happy. No. In fact, she confronts Ingjald over taking sides against Njall. Uh, we get a bit of his backstory here, which mm-hmm. is that Njal saved Ingald from outlawry on three separate occasions. Those lawsuits aren't mentioned in this saga, um, and this is the first we're hearing of them.
0: Yeah, it's a nice reminder that Njal's actually been busy as a lawyer for all these years, and mm-hmm. a lot of people actually do owe him favors. Although that only helps him if people pay him back, and Ingjald's kind of an ingrate. And that's what Hroldny's so upset about. Yeah, but that's not the only thing, right? She also pulls out the bloody cap that her son Hoskald was wearing when he was hacked down by looting the brother-in-law. And she says, it doesn't
1: seem at all right to me that you should help those who brought that about. Yeah, she's in a rage, but an entirely justifiable one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen this before with Gunnar's mother, Ronweg, and with Horskald Thrainson's wife, Hildegum.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. This is a saga that really doesn't have a lot of purely good people in it. Uh, it's a strength of the saga, I think, but it does mean that the righteous anger of grieving women stands out as maybe the purest moral position in the saga.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and Ingjald crumbles almost immediately in the face of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might be a noted warrior, but he's a little wishy-washy in the moral backbone department.
0: Well, as his sister reminds him, Niall's had to get him out of outlawry cases three times. He might not be a shining example of ethical purity, <laughs> uh, but at least he's taking a stand now.
1: Well, I mean, he does predict that he's bringing down the wrath of Flosi's entire crew on him for backing out of the pact, mm-hmm. and as we'll see later, he's he's not wrong about that. True. And he is the only one to actually back out of the oath.
0: So I guess he gets a little bit of credit.
1: Mm, A little. Mm. Uh, But Hrodni later reports this conversation to Njal, along with Ingjald's warning that Njal's family should be on their guard all summer. And grateful, but really, it's nothing he didn't already know. The farm at Bergthor's fall is essentially an armed camp already.
0: And at this point, there are a series of portents of the coming disaster. Uh, First, Bergthor's old foster mother, Sion, is found one day beating up a pile of fodder with a stick.
1: Now, now, I don't know if that's portent so much as a sign of uh, maybe dementia. <laughs> okay, I know you're
0: setting me up, but that's exactly what Scarpaven thinks. Uh, and being an unsympathetic person by nature, he laughs at her. But Sion tells him that she's seen a vision of the future and that this fodder pile will be used to light a fire that will destroy the farm.
1: Mm. Which seems like an easy problem to solve. You just run around and destroy the fodder, which I guess is what right. she's doing.
0: No, of course they can't do that.
1: <laughs> no, of course not. Uh, dismisses her concern and he says, if this pile isn't here, something else will be used to start the fire, if that's what's fated. Which, I mean, that does make sense.
0: It does, but it's another sign that Njal's family now believes their fates are sealed. And it's mm-hmm. especially true of Scarpaven.
1: Yeah, I want to know what kind of slovenly farm Burgdor is running here. I mean, <laughs> why is a random pile of chickweed even lying around for that long? Uh,
0: well, I mean, chickweed is low-grade fodder, right? And I suppose it's just a perpetual pile of it
1: around, getting added to or taken from whenever it's needed for the animals. Oh, I say you should keep your farmstead tidy. Mm-hmm. Even if you're fated to die, no reason to die with a messy farm. In <laughs> fact, all the more reason to clean up.
0: Fair enough. Well, but the chickweed pile is just one thing. There's a lot of evidence piling up. But, Ooh! Uh, see what I did there? That Njal's family is in deep trouble. Uh, over in Rekir, Hildeglum Runofsson has a vision of a man on a gray horse setting fire to the mountains. And the man in the vision speaks a verse before he vanishes. I ride a horse with hoar-frost mane and dripping forelocks, bringing evil. The torch ends burn, the middle brings bane. Flosi's plans are like a flung torch. Flosi's plans are like a flung torch.
1: Flossie's plans are like a flung torch.
0: It's not subtle. <laughs> no, and it's barely skaldic verse. Uh, at that point, I don't know why the author isn't just doing limericks about burning farmhouses. <laughs> <laughs> there once was a Flosi from Svinifel, whose vengeance was fiery and terrible. He rode through the night, set Njal's farmhouse alight, but most thought his arson regrettable.
1: <laughs> that's a new low for us. That uh, that limerick is regrettable. Uh,
0: well, that's the nice thing about lows. All you have to do is keep digging and you'll keep finding new
1: ones. <laughs> and there's uh, still another vision uh, that we should talk about. This one's a husband and wife team vision mm. from Njal and Bergthora. Uh One night while serving dinner at the farm, Bergthora says, Each of you is to have what he likes best for... This evening is the last time I will serve food into my household.
0: Yeah, that's ominous.
1: Yeah, and she says that Grimm and Helgi, who are supposed to be away from home for the night, will return before the end of the meal, and that will be a sign that what she said is true.
0: Yeah, it's going to make for an uncomfortable dinner. Uh, and <laughs> isn't helping. While the food is brought out, he says, Strange things are happening. I look around and imagine that I see both gable walls gone, and the table and food all covered with blood.
1: Ugh. <sighs> And of course, right after he says that, Grimm and Helgi return mm-hmm. home, thus proving Bergthor's prophecy to be true. Right, and it's not just that. They've returned because they've learned that Flossi's crew is on the way. Not just on the way. They're tying up their horses behind a nearby knoll. Mm-hmm. But uh, when they come around the hill, they find that they're expected. Because Niall, Scarpathen, Grimm, Helgi, Kari, and about two dozen armed farmhands are all standing in the farmyard waiting for them. Ah, so the surprise attack's off. Oh yeah, the surprise attack is definitely off.
0: Part 37. Attack at Bergthorstfeld. So at this point, the two sides are in a bit of a stalemate.
1: Yes. Flossi's got enough men to overwhelm the Njalsons if they all rush at once, but it would mean a pitched battle in an open yard, and there would be a massacre on both sides if they tried it. Not a good idea.
0: Right, but that doesn't mean that Flosi's men aren't urging the attack.
1: Right, as usual, Grani Gunnarsson is uh, pushing for violence. He argues, our trip will be wasted if we don't dare attack them. Yeah, and
0: Flossie responds, we'll attack them even if they stay where they are, but then we'll pay dearly,
1: and not many will live to say which side won. So what we're seeing is that Flossie's, uh, does, uh, just out of curiosity, does Flossie also do the announcements for Twilight Zone? No. We no? ended up with a voice for yeah, we did end up with a voice for him somewhere between Rod Serling and Charlton Heston. <laughs> <So> <laughs> is that right? I <laughs> kind of going for that middle ground. Gotcha. It's been so long, I don't remember what mm-hmm. the voices are. All right, so yeah, so what we're seeing is that Flossi's keeping a clear head in the middle of all this and trying to rein in the worst instincts of the Sygphazins. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, meanwhile, Njal and Scarpathan are a couple hundred feet away and having a very similar conversation to the one we're having. Njal asks his sons for an assessment of Flossie's strength, and Scarpathan says, they have a tough force and a large one too, but they've stopped because they think they'll
1: have a hard time defeating us. So this is really a delicate balance here. Neither side wants to fight under these circumstances, but Mm -hmm. there's really nothing either group can do that won't make the situation worse. Right. Unless someone does something foolish.
0: You know, something really,
1: really suicidally foolish. Something so monumentally stupid. (laughs) Okay, we we get the point. So in brief, (laughs) what happens next is pretty straightforward. At Njal's urging, the entire family and a few of their farmhands retreat into the farmhouse. Mm. Once they do, Flossie says, Now they are doomed. Mm. And he's right. With no escape route, the family's now relying on their ability to withstand a long siege while seriously outnumbered. Right, but not everybody is excited about the idea. I think it's important to look at who's on what
0: side of that argument.
1: Well, I'm more interested in the comparison Njal makes to the siege on Gunnar's house all those years ago.
0: Well, the two things are related, right? So uh, why don't you go first?
1: Well, Njal says that they'll be safer in the house because the attackers had a hard time against Gunnar and he faced them all alone. With a larger group of armed defenders, Niall argues they won't be able to overcome us.
0: Well, it's not as if there isn't merit to that argument. Right? Remember, no. Gunnar was actually doing pretty well in holding off 30 men by himself until his bowstring was cut.
1: Sure, oh, Holger. <laughs> but you're right, but he's seriously overestimating the moral fiber of the men outside the house. Yeah, he kind of is. Uh, as Scarpaven points out,
0: the men who attacked Gunnar were chieftains of such integrity that they'd rather have turned back than burn him in his house but these men will attack us with fire if they can't do it any other way, and they'll do anything to finish us off.
1: Now, we should say that Skarpathen's got some bias here, since a lot of the men who were at the attack are now friends of the Njalsens. but mm. he's absolutely right. At the attack on Gunnar's, Morth Walgerson was urging the attackers to set fire to the house, and the leader of that group, Geezer the White, finally told him, I don't know why you keep talking about something that no one else wants. That will never happen.
0: Right. Now, and Scarpaven recognizes that the men allied against them now are more bloodthirsty, less moral, or maybe just more desperate than Gizr's supporters had been. Mm -hmm. They can't rely on the besiegers to show the
1: same restraint. That's true, but we should add that Flossi's group has good reason to be more desperate. I mean, they're in such a more precarious legal position than Gunnar's killers ever were. Because Gunnar was an outlaw, you mean? Yeah, right. Uh, Gunnar was outside the law's protection from the moment when he refused to go into exile. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no legal judgment against Njal's family, which, which means that Flossi's men aren't legally sanctioned in this action. Right, and that's an important point.
0: Uh, a failed attack in this case isn't really much better than a successful one, legally speaking. Mm-hmm. And if they do fail, there's going to be a lot of angry
1: Njalsons looking for revenge. Uh, with an aging but still unparalleled lawyer to back them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, setting fire to the place is starting to look almost reasonable.
0: Almost. It's
1: still pretty horrific. Uh, But before we get there, let's talk about the argument before the group retreats into the house. Well, obviously we've got Njal arguing for going inside and Skarpathan arguing against. Right, but they've each got a supporter in the argument. Uh, Kari Selmundrusson sees the situation the same way
0: as Skarpathan, and Helgi speaks up on Njal's side. Let's do as our father
1: wishes. That will be best for us. We have the benefit of the reader's omniscience here. And so we know that Njal and Helgi are making a mistake. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that it's these two arguing to go into the farmhouse. We know that Njal has a certain ability to see some of the future, at least in a limited way. And of all of his sons, Helgi is the only one that inherited that ability. Right. Now, we saw that when he was in Norway with Grimm. Mm -hmm. And yet it's these two making the mistake that's going to put the
0: family in danger. Right. So the question is, is it a mistake? Right. Are they embracing their fate or is there a precognition on the Fritz somehow?
1: I figured you'd ask this, and I always go back and forth. Mm. I mean, on the one hand, I think self preservation here dictates going inside and hoping that, like in Gunnar's situation, the house isn't set on fire. I and mean, Y'all even alludes to Gunnar's success using the same strategy. But on the other hand, this whole narrative is structured around the inexorable force that fate has on the lives of all the characters. Mm-hmm. Gunnar's a great example of this. He embraced his fate and went down in a blaze of glory, didn't he? Uh, pun intended. Uh, no, no, I was thinking of uh Bon Jovi and Billy the Kid today, so ah. uh, maybe yes, I don't know. <laughs> well, Gunnar never drew first, but he drew first blood. Uh-huh, but, uh well, he wasn't the devil's son. Oh, well. Uh To, to answer your question, though... Oh, were you going to? Great. Uh, yeah, was. Well, <laughs> th- yeah, this is a troubling moment for me. Uh If we accept that y'all knows what's about to happen, then he's basically condemning his entire family to a gruesome death. Mm-hmm. And yet, Njall seems to stoically embrace this unavoidable fate by urging everyone to go inside. It would be a mistake, though, to, to assume that Njall is going to just passively accept his death without setting the stage for the next sequence of events through the burning itself.
0: Well, I like that. I, I do also think there's an element of manfully accepting fate here, and each man mm-hmm. is doing it in his own way. Scarpe then says, I'm ready to please my father by burning in the house with him. Maybe Njal and Helgi, realizing that their fate is upon them, decide to embrace it and even go to meet it.
1: Yeah, but even if Skarpathan's willing to die, that doesn't mean he's eager to die.
0: No, Uh, but as we said last time, Skarpathan, more than any of them, is laboring under a cloud of ill fortune. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's thinking about things beyond the immediate. And so before they go into the house, Kari and Skarpathan have a whispered conference. Skarpathan says, Let's all stay close together, brother-in-law, so that nobody is separated from the rest.
1: That's my plan, too, but if it's fated to be otherwise, then that's the way it will be.
0: Then avenge us, and we'll avenge you if we live through this. I agree. Well, they both recognize the farmhouse is a death trap, uh, but they both agree to go inside rather than act against Njal's wishes.
1: Well, I mean, they're used to Njal's advice being supernaturally good.
0: Sure. Yeah, Yeah. but they know it's not good now. Eh. Whether Njal's just resigned to his fate, or as Scarpaven suggests, he's just gotten a bit old and isn't making reliable decisions anymore— uh, Scarpe then, and Kari both realize that Njal's no longer really leading them, and mm-hmm. yet they follow him inside.
1: Well, they're all in the hands of fate now. Even Grimm, who, as usual, has <laughs> been silent throughout this entire discussion. Uh, poor Grimm. He's a simple lad in many ways. Yeah. So uh, the defenders enter the house, and Flossi immediately tells his men that the Njalsens are doomed because he knows that he's now got an option if armed combat fails, mm-hmm. he can set fire to the house.
0: Well, he may not be wrong but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Nial was right that Gunnar once held off 30 men by himself by using a farmhouse as a defensive position.
1: Uh, true, and to his credit, Flossi's taking no chances. The attackers move quickly to block the doors so that no one can escape, and the first skirmish starts right away. Flossi takes charge of the front door along with his friend Hrold Ozurarsson. Oh yeah, this guy. Uh, Hrold and his father were early
0: adopters of Christianity. Uh, Ozur of Breda was one of the prominently mentioned converts during Thangbrand's missionary work. Hrold is a kinsman of Hall of Seda, and so he's a distant in-law of Flosi's. He's also one of the men who swore the oath of the All Thing to hunt down the Nyalsons, so he's eager to get the blood flowing.
1: Careful what you wish for, Hrold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Hrold and Flosi block the front door, but Scarpathen's there waiting for them. Hrold tries stabbing a spear at Scarpathen, but Scarpathen chops the point of the spear off, brushes the shaft aside, and chops Hrold in the face. Ooh. Yeah, Krald falls down dead on the spot and becomes the first casualty of the Siege of Burgthor's Fall.
0: He is, but he's going to be in good company pretty soon. Uh, Think of it as leaving the party early to avoid the rush.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I like that we get a bit of reaction on both sides to this. Uh, Kari cheers Scarpathen for drawing first blood. Uh, And meanwhile, Flossi is a little in shock at losing his in-law so quickly. We have lost that one whom we least wanted to lose.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a mean thing to say in earshot of his other men. Wait, you've got us ranked by how much you want us to die? Not cool, man. Who's at the top of the list? Is it Granny Gunnarsson? I can hear you guys. It's Granny, isn't it? God, shut up, Thorstein! (laughs)
1: Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) I feel filthy after doing that.
0: (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Actually, if I can just force a segue here.
1: This is... no. uh, yeah, no, go ahead. You, you, you usually can.
0: Yeah. The author makes a small narrative choice here that I think is really interesting. Uh, as you said, we get the reactions to Herald's death from inside and outside the house. And from this point until the end of the siege, the narrative is going to be moving back and forth from inside to outside. And increasingly, the
1: emphasis will be on what's happening inside the house. Almost as if we're trapped inside with the Njalsons and their supporters. Mm-hmm.
0: More or less. Uh, burning's are usually witnessed by the narrative from outside, possibly to provide plausibility, right? How would an account of the words spoken among dying defenders be known? That sort of thing. Yeah, but the sagas aren't straightforward history. Right, no, but I'm talking about narrative plausibility, not historical record. But in this case, the author chooses to provide an insider perspective of a burning. It makes sense for a couple
1: of reasons. Sure, well, I mean, these are the figures we care about as readers. Absolutely.
0: Uh, and there's also a shred of plausibility if the narrative shows how an account of what happened in the farmhouse could have survived.
1: Hmm, but well, I think we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, for now, as we go
0: into this next section, I just want to call everyone's attention to the fact that we're going to be spending time inside the burning farmhouse alongside the doomed defenders. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, I think it's finally time for... Part 38, The Burning of Njal Thorderson Part 1. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, there are a lot of ways we could cover this. It might take a while. Well, you know, I'm going to vote for straightforward. Uh, back, back in July of 2016, I would have said, let's take our time, John. <laughs> but, you know, six months later, I'm I'm all for rushing ahead. Uh-huh. Well, that's kind of what I mean. I mean, the
0: burning is a climax, maybe the climax to the saga's action. But there's still a whole lot of saga to go. I mean, mm-hmm. we're pretty sure it's going to take two more episodes to finish this thing up after this.
1: So you're thinking it's a mistake to make this out to be the saga's main event then?
0: No, no, it's it's definitely the main event. I mean, we're about
1: to lose nearly all the main protagonists we've been following
0: in this story. No, my point is that we need to be clear that the saga situates the burning as a major event in Icelandic history, but the aftermath of the burning is just as important. From a legal and cultural perspective, it might actually be more important. That's fair. I just wanted to make sure we didn't get all excited about this and then realize we still have nearly a quarter of the saga to go.
1: All right, so uh, let's uh, set some chickweed on fire. Okay, light them up. In fairness, it's not as if Flossie and his men set fire to the building right away. The problem is that nothing else is working. Uh, Yeah, pretty much. Uh, And Flossie knows that using fire is a terrible thing to do.
0: It's clear now that we cannot defeat them with weapons. Now we'll have to try something else. There are two choices, and neither of them is good. One is to turn back, but that would lead to our death. The other is to bring fire and burn them inside.
1: And that will be a great responsibility before God. Now, this is one of the clearest indicators we have of the shift in the saga since the conversion. flosi's meant to be a true convert. He fears God's judgment in, in a way that, that's entirely consistent with other late medieval writing, but mm-hmm. he's really in a bad spot here, and fire seems like the only solution available.
0: Yeah, I mean, Niall's group is trapped inside, but they've still got Scarpathed, Kari, Grimm, and Helgi guarding the doors. No one can get in, and a lot of Flossi's men are getting hurt trying to break the
1: defenses. Which means we need to see the decision to burn the house as one that Flossi knows is a last resort. Mm -hmm. He turns to fire because he and his men are already committed. They've made open warfare on Nyarl's family, and now they can't walk away without finishing the job. They turn to fire so that they don't leave any vengeance-minded Nyarlsons alive. Right, and Flossi may fear
0: God's judgment for the burning, but God can't be much harsher than the critics of the saga have been, honestly. Uh, (laughs) Cook says, Nyal and his family are annihilated by men who take no risks and burn them inside their house. Much blood is shamefully shed in this saga. Not exactly what Seekers After Viking Adventure want to read. Wow.
1: So, <laughs> tut tut. Is that one of his footnotes? I didn't remember that one. No, it's it's in the introduction. Oh, okay. No, well, I should read the intro. Now, to be clear... <laughs> you and my students. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, that's a criticism of the people in the saga. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cook's not bagging on the author of the saga for writing badly, is he? Oh, no,
0: no, no! absolutely. Cook's point is that a lot of the behaviors of the figures in this saga are problematic, mm-hmm. right? not the writer. Uh, remember, Flossie's burners are getting their torches ready because the Nyalsens assassinated an unarmed and innocent man. Right? There's a lot of reason to think that this author's got a fairly cynical view of humanity.
1: Yeah, But to some degree, he's also constrained by the oral traditions of his time. And there, there's all, almost certainly a version of this story known to the Saga audience already. And the Saga author can't just invent a new version of the story with Flosi and Yol kind of laughing off the whole thing over a beer. No, he can't. But wouldn't that be nice? We don't deal in nice here. Let's burn this sucker. <laughs> now, that <laughs> right. sounds harsh. You're, get, <laughs> you're, nice. get, you're getting really enthusiastic about this. That's all because right. I can finally so, see the light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Right, fair enough. But the light is a burning farmhouse. Uh, so, Flosi's men set several small fires going, but the women inside the house are initially able to douse the flames with Whey. This is actually pretty cool. We saw the same thing happen in Gisli's saga, uh, when Gisli's father yeah. Thorbjorn saved his family by using Whey to put out a house burning long enough for them to escape
1: out the back. Right, yeah. This is how Thorbjorn got his name Sur, which means way. um and it's it's why Gisli is called Gisli Sursen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, is, is this just a literary trope, or are people actually doing this? I think it probably reflects a trope, but one set in a culture where the
0: presence of tubs of whey was just an assumed part of life on the farm. Mm-hmm. Didn't you say something a while back about whey also being able to help with the fermentation of alcohol?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how that, uh, you know, necessarily relates to Icelandic culture, but... Uh, oh, you brought it up before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, when I was in uh, in uh, Peace Corps with, in the Russian Far East, uh, mm-hmm. a former Soviet submarine captain taught me how to make vodka <laughs> in exchange for some lasagna and uh, some packets of taco seasoning that had been sent to us. Oh. And he had, uh, he had two recipes, one of which used whey to help speed up the fermentation process. Uh, and you could actually buy whey in little baggies at the dairy kiosks all around town. Kind of cool. Neat. Uh, well, in this case,
0: the whey only provides a momentary relief because one of the burners... Carl Thorstensen spots the pile of chickweed at the side of the house and lights oh, it up. Oh, boy. The people inside the house don't realize another fire has been set until it's too late to put it out, and now the house is truly on fire.
1: Yeah, and this is also the point when everyone inside knows that they're going to die, mm. I mean, unless Flossi and the Burners show some mercy.
0: Right, and we should be clear that that is a possibility, right? not for the Nielsen's Zakari, maybe, but there are a lot of people in the house right now, most of whom the Burners don't have any particular grudge against. Remember, there are 30 people in the yard, right? Most of them are now presumably inside, and there are some women there, including Bergthora, two Njal's daughters, right, Helga and Thorgird, along with the wives of the Njallsins, right, uh, Thorhalla Asgrim's daughter, Astrid of Djubarbaki. Uh There's also at least one child in the house, but we'll get to that in a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, hey, wait, hang on a second. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we're getting this right. Njal's daughter Thorgird is in the house? Yes, this is the same daughter who's married to Kettle Sigvason of Mork. Uh, that's right. Yeah, and Kettle's outside with his brothers helping set fire to the house that his wife is in. Yeah. Uh well we said this feud was going to be awkward for them. <laughs> well, that's a little more than awkward. <laughs> I mean I'm trying to imagine my wife's reaction if I set fire to a house she was in. <laughs> She wouldn't take it well? I wouldn't hang around to find out. Yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, it's a reasonable
0: reaction to be a little annoyed. I think sometimes when you spend enough time with your head in the sagas, it's easy to lose sight of just how insane some of this stuff is. Yeah. Uh, in any case, we're not the first ones to wonder just what the heck is going on with this marriage. Uh, William Ian Miller points out that Kettle is treated throughout as a fundamentally decent person. He's been trying to calm things as much as possible, and even after the Njalsons kill his older brother Thrain, he tries to keep the feud from getting out of hand.
1: He's hardly the sort of person to treat his own wife as collateral damage, in other words. Right. Mm, Okay, but that just brings us back to the question of why Kettle and Thorgerd find themselves on opposite sides of a burning door. (laughs) But Helga Kress argues that this is another example of Njal refusing to let his children leave his farm and influence. It's even possible to read it as a kind of hostage-taking on Njal's part. Hostage. You mean Njal is keeping his own daughter hostage? Well, that's her argument. I mean, Mm -hmm. Kress clearly takes a dim view of Njal's behavior toward his kids, and and we've talked a little bit about that as well. Mm -hmm. His desire to remain independent of the chieftains has left Njal so isolated since Gunnar's death that he has no choices, Mm -hmm. and his children have been sort of conscripted into Njal's isolationist lifestyle.
0: Yeah, I see how that argument works, but I'm not buying that we're meant to have that harsh a view of Njal, especially in this section. uh, I mean, to go back to Miller's argument, Miller thinks this is a case of the author just losing focus for a minute. Hmm. Uh, hasn't been a major figure in the saga. In fact, this is the first time she actually physically appears in the saga. And even then, she doesn't say anything that's recorded. She's just there
1: alongside her sister and her sister's-in-law. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, it's worth noting that a lot of authors kind of call into question Njal's motives here. Sure. And exactly. some of them even vilify him. I think yes. we've mentioned that before. Yes. But whichever the, the case, Thorgird and Kettle are definitely going to need some marriage counseling after this. Well, if they survive. Yes, if they survive. Uh, and meanwhile, Scarpathen is still busy antagonizing people. He mocks the Burners for starting a cooking fire during a siege, which is pretty <laughs> nervy for a guy inside the fire. <laughs>
0: I do like the juxtaposition of Njal and Skarpathen here. Skarpathen is busy taunting his enemies, while Njal gathers the scared people around him and tells them not to fear the flames. Mm. Bear this bravely and don't show any fear. It's only a brief storm, and it will be a long time before we have another like it. Have faith that God is merciful, and he will not let us burn both in this world and the next. Mm. Those
1: are comforting words. Indeed they are. Of course, Njal then kind of undercuts them when he shouts out to Flossi, Hey! Any chance you'd let us out? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's only human. Yeah, but you'd think he'd at least ask to get out first and wait until afterward for the sermon about accepting fate, you know? It doesn't really work as well the way he does it. Right. God will decide what's best. Hey, uh, it's getting hot in here. <laughs> you guys hot? Yeah, the,
0: the short version here is that Njal asks for a safe passage for the women, children, and servants, and mm-hmm. Flosi grants it. Uh, Flossi also offers to let Njal and Bergthora out, but Njal refuses to leave unless his sons can leave with him, and Bergthora refuses to leave without Njal.
1: Yeah, they're a sweet old couple. Mm-hmm. But uh, the significant point here is that Flossi's going to let most of the people in the farmhouse out.
0: Yeah, uh, the servants all head out, and then it's time for the women to go. Thorhalla Osgrim's daughter, is particularly reluctant to go. And Njal has to explicitly order her to leave.
1: Yes, and before she goes, she promises Njal that she'll make sure her father Osgrim and her brother Thorhall take the full measure of revenge for those who die in the fire. And then she takes her leave of her husband Helgi Njallsen. My parting from Helgi is much different from what I would have expected.
0: Yeah, uh, she probably doesn't need to promise revenge since her, her brother is Njal's foster son and mm-hmm. her dad is Njal's closest living friend. But it's yes. an important reassurance for those about to die. Yeah, there's also something a little fishy
1: going on here. Oh, okay, right. You want to explain this? Okay. So, Thorhalla explicitly says goodbye to Helgi, her husband. Mm-hmm. None of the other women present are given any speeches here. Not even Njal's daughters. So, why is that fishy? Oh, well, because there's a plan afoot. Mm-hmm. Helgi's leaving with the women. Aha. You see, Grimm's wife, Astrid, convinces Helgi to dress in a woman's cloak and kerchief and sneak out of the house among the women. Right. Now, this is fascinating to me. I think it's pretty clear that Thorhall's goodbye is meant for
0: the ears of the Burners. Yes. We've already established that they can hear most of what's being said in, inside the house. Thorhalla's speech establishing that Helgi's staying in her house. She's even referring to him in the third person, in case anyone outside doesn't know who she's talking about.
1: Right. Uh, so, in a saga where masculinity is so vulnerable and so often attacked we get this unexpected moment of cross-dressing. And it looks on the surface like a cowardly act. Helgi's dressing as a woman, but more to the point, he's also abandoning his family to their deaths and saving himself. Right, but why? Well, he doesn't especially want to die. Okay, that's a fair point. But I I think I know what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. This isn't about saving himself as much as it's about getting someone out alive. Mm -hmm. Someone who can take up the task of avenging the dead. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. This is getting into some pretty grim calculation at this point.
0: The farm's on fire. The building is filling with smoke. The fact is, most or all of those left in the house are going to die. With the exception of Niall and Bergthor, who we'll get to in a minute, everyone else is trying to find a way for any one of them to survive. The living might take up the case, but they also might not, or they might fail. Right. Someone needs to live to avenge the dead.
1: Sure, but... But why Helgi? I mean, why not Scarbhaven or Kari or Grimm? Well, that's a trickier question, especially since it's Grimm's wife who comes up with the plan. Mm -hmm.
0: But there is an answer. We described the three Njalsons way back in the second episode on this saga. Andy, do you remember those descriptions? Are you kidding me? Do you know how (laughs) long ago that was? (laughs) over six months ago, right?
1: Uh, yeah, no, like that. That,
0: that's what I figured. So I went back and transcribed our descriptions.
1: Oh, you're a gentleman. <laughs> you, but you do really need
0: a hobby. Your silence. Uh, so listen to these and see what leaps out at you. Okay. We described scarpaven as a big and strong man. I don't know why I'm doing a funny voice for us. Uh, <laughs> do it in your voice. Uh, we described Scarpathen. I'll, I'll do your voice. A big and strong man. <laughs> Uh, we describe Scarpathen as a big and strong man who excels at running, swimming, and fighting. Grim is tall, dark-haired, and handsome, and quite strong for his size. Okay, what about Helgi? Helgi is a strong and even-tempered man, not as big as his brothers, but the best-looking of the three.
1: Aha, uh-huh, I get it. Helgi's the smallest of the three brothers, so mm-hmm. he's... And he's also good-looking, fair, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So maybe he's got the best chance of blending in with the women.
0: Right. See, this is another one of those moments when the author's been seeding in these tiny bits of information that all turn out to be important later in the story.
1: Mm, Nice. Seriously, though, there's almost no limit to how deeply you can dig into the saga and keep coming up with new stuff. It's really amazing. This is why we're nine episodes in already. There's also a different possibility here. Mm -hmm. The cross-dressing might link Helgi to his father's supposed androgyny. I mean, both men also have foresight, which is sometimes associated with women's magic, right?
0: Yeah, and I think both things can be in play at once. I'm not necessarily mm. committing to that line of thought, but it's, it's definitely something others have said.
1: I so, like the former more than the latter, to yeah, be
0: honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I do too. Uh, so, okay, we're, we're back at the moment when the women and servants leave the house. Helgi walks out between the wives of Grimm and Scarpathen with his sisters behind him. Thorhalla leaves separately with the servants.
1: So the hope is that if the burners are counting heads, they'll count Thorhalla among the servants and Helgi as Thorhalla among the wives. Exactly. That's a good plan. It is. Yeah, but it doesn't work. No. (laughs) No. I mean, (laughs) the problem is that Flossi's not a fool, and he's watching the people come out of the house very carefully. When the women come out of the smoke, Flossi immediately yells, That woman there is big and broad-shouldered. Grab her. Oops.
0: Uh, yeah, Helgi isn't big compared to his brothers, but he does stand out in a group of women.
1: Exactly. So Helgi knew this was a possibility, and when Flosi spots him, he throws off the cloak. He's got a sword hidden underneath, and he manages to attack one man and chop off his leg before Flossi can get to him. Mm-hmm. But before he can get his balance back, Flossi swings at Helgi's neck and chops off his head with a single stroke.
0: Uh,
1: now, later, it's going to be very important that Flossi delivered that blow himself. But, for now, Helgi's death means one more avenue for revenge is lost, and it adds to the growing despair inside the house. Part
0: 39. The Burning of Njal Thorgerson. Part 2. Okay, so, after Helgi is killed, Njal and Bergthora decide to lie themselves down in their bed and die peacefully. Njal tells his farm's foreman, who's about to leave the house that they'll be in their bed under an ox-hide and won't move no matter what. Then you'll know where our remains can be found.
1: Now, we did say things are getting pretty grim inside the house. Mm -hmm. So the implication here is that Njal wants a Christian burial. And for that to happen, his body has to be recovered. Sure. Uh,
0: But there's going to be one more person in bed with them. Bergthora has been holding on to her grandson, Thord Karason, the young son of Kari and Helga. Now, why is this kid still in there? Mm-hmm. I mean, didn't he leave with his mother? Shouldn't he have? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Kari's still inside the house, but presumably all the other children have left with the women and servants. But Thor's refusing to leave. He tells Bergthora, You promised me, grandmother, that we would never be parted. And then he lies mm-hmm. down in the bed with his grandparents. And that's the last anyone sees or hears of them.
1: See, and that's one of the things that makes it such a heartbreaking scene. Yeah. The well, idea think- of them kind of... Crawling into bed, covering yeah. themselves with this little child in between them. Yeah, I think that's
0: the point. Uh, mm. Of course, can cameras just to comment. Our father has gone to bed early, which was to be expected. He's an old man after all. Mm. But he doesn't mention
1: that his mother and nephew are in the bed as well. So what what is wrong with Kari? <laughs> Why isn't he stepping in to insist that his son leave? Yeah, that's actually a very good question.
0: It's it's yeah, it's never addressed in the saga. Uh, in fact, it's not even clear at this point that Kari knows Thord is still in the house. Well, how could he not know? Well, ever since the house was set on fire, he and the Njalsons have been alternately fighting the flames and holding off Flossi's men at the doors. I think it's fair to assume that he thinks his son left with the others.
1: Mm, I don't think that's fair because if my son was in the house with me, I would be checking on and making sure, even well, if I'm trying to put out But flames. of
0: course, his mother left. Right? And so yeah. the assumption would be that the mother the mother took the son with her.
1: Quite possibly, yeah. Well... As we said, the house is filling with smoke and fire. It's likely no one knows exactly how many people are left in the building. True. But you'd still think he'd have checked in with Helga before he, she left. Make sure you grab the kid on the way out, eh? <laughs> well, like we said, he's a little busy. Sure he is. Uh, yeah, And they're running out of defenders. There might be one or two more people in the house, either dead or injured. But otherwise, we're down to then Grimm, Kari, and a man called Thord Freeman, who who's a friend of the family.
0: Oh, yeah. I'd a royal friend. A friend. Yeah. uh, Now, didn't we see Thord Freeman die way
1: back during the feud between Hologreth and Bergthora? Yeah, we did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this isn't his ghost. It's probably (laughs) his son. Although, it's also possible the author just conflates two different men named Thord. Mm -hmm. Either way, it doesn't matter much because Thord is soon lost to the flames and smoke. And then there were three defenders. Uh, And those three are mostly fighting a losing battle against the fire now, which has spread to the roof and is now burning through the beams. Flossie orders his men to stop attacking, partly because the fire is going to do their job for them, and partly because they keep getting stabbed with their own spears. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The burners kind of suck as an attacking force. Well, but Flossie's right. The building's starting to collapse, and there isn't much time left for the defenders. So this is the end? Is all hope lost? Not quite. At this moment, a burning beam falls in at one end of the hall, knocking a chunk of the roof out and opening up a path out of the flames. Mm -hmm. The three men make their way through the fire to it, but it's burning through in the middle, and they're not sure it'll hold their weight. Right, now this moment is
0: written like something out of an action movie. As the flaming roof continues to fall in all around them, Scarpeyden and Kari argue about who should go first. Grim, as usual, says nothing. (laughs) I'm going to stick with being
1: Scarpeyden here.
0: Okay, I'm Kari. You go! I'll help you start and run behind you, and we'll both get away if we do this. You run first!
1: And I'll be right behind. There's no need for that. I'll get out somewhere else if I don't make it here. I don't want that. You run out first. I'll be right on your heels. Every
0: man is obliged to save his life, and so I will. But our parting now means we'll never meet again. If I run out, I won't have the courage to run back into the flames to join you. And each of us will
1: have to go his own way. Stay alive, no matter what occurs. (laughs) I will find you. He says, It cheers me, my brother-in-law to think that if you escape you will avenge us these two oh. this, is, this is really a bromance for the ages isn't it it's beautiful mm. now you do have to wonder what Grimm's thinking through all this hey uh anybody want to ask if i want to get out first cuz <laughs> poor I, grim I <laughs> anyway kari leaps up on the beam and with his usual agility remember him from uh, the mm-hmm. earlier sections yep. when he was uh, a seafaring adventurer right. a swashbuckler if you will um uh, Kari leaps up on the beam, and with his usual agility, runs up it easily. He flings a piece of burning wood out ahead of him to clear the way, and throws himself through the hole in the roof. And he's out. Yeah, but not cleanly. He's actually on fire when he drops to the ground. Mm. So much so that the burners all think he's just another piece of the falling roof. Or another chunk of burning house that Scarpathen's been throwing at them. Right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I like the idea that Scarpathan has become semi-mythical at this point. Entire beams and walls are falling out of the burning farmhouse now, and everyone is assuming it's Scarpathan throwing
1: things at them. Well, there have been hints that throughout he's something of a monstrous or even kind of troll-like figure. Mm -hmm. No one's entirely sure how strong he's capable of getting or what he's capable of doing, especially in a circumstance like this. Uh, Remember that Berserks are a thing in this culture. Scarpathan is not a Berserk, but as far as we know anyway... Uh, mm-hmm. But it pays to be careful with someone like Scarpathen. Right, sure. And the Burner's uncertainty about Scarpathen's strength saves Kari. But he
0: still has to run from the house, still on fire, until he finds a hollow in the ground where he can hide. Only then can he put out his burning clothes and hair and lie badly burned waiting for Scarpathen and Grimm to follow. Mm. But he waits and waits, and no one
1: else comes out of the fire. Oh, the new movie is going to be so good. Oh my gosh. Out. Yeah, well, Scarpaven is a bigger man than Kari, and when he tries to scamper up the beam, it of course breaks under his weight. Mm. He can't climb the wall either, and so he and Grim are now trapped. Can you really use the word scamper to refer to scarpaven? Okay, he tries to run up or sprint up. How about lumber up the
0: yeah. beam? Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 not that, not that one. It just sounds like you're making a bad pun about the beam. I was. Uh, Anyway, it, it doesn't matter uh, so much how he does it. There's a group of burners nearby and watching, so they'd probably have stopped him even if he'd managed to get out. Well, they didn't stop Kari. Well, Kari was a fireball when he got out, and they ignored <laughs> him. Right? They're focusing on Skarpathan through the flames. He's the one they're most scared of. In fact, Gunnar Lambesson, one of the Sigfusen clan, is still up on the roof, even though it's on fire, and he's mocking Skarpathan through the flames. What's this? Are you crying now, Skarpathan?
1: Not at all, though it's true my eyes are smarting. But it seems to me you're laughing, or am I wrong? You're right, and this is the first time I've laughed since you killed my Uncle Thrain! Oh, then here's something to remember him by. Then Scarpe then reaches into his pouch, pulls out one of the molars he had picked up after killing Thrain, that's right, I said molar, and he throws it at Gunnar's eye with such force that the eye pops out and hangs on Gunnar's cheek. (laughs) And then Gunnar <laughs> fell off the roof.
0: Well, you would, wouldn't you?
1: I don't know. I've never had my eyeball knocked out, much less by someone <laughs> else's molar being used as a projectile. But yeah, I guess I'd fall out of shock if, if not from sheer pain. Uh, why the hell is scarpaven still carrying that nasty thing around in his pouch? Well, we've seen this before, although I don't know about teeth, uh, but there have been people taking treasures from those they've killed. Hmm. Uh, remember Hairstein carrying off the head of Henthor in Henthor's Saga? Uh, and then hmm. there was uh, Thorbjorn Hook carrying Gretcher's head to the Allthing.
0: No, I know, but, but those are short-term. And they're heads. Well, right. Scarphaven killed Thrain at least a dozen years ago, maybe more.
1: Wow, was it that long ago?
0: Yeah.
1: Wow, time flies. Well, it's at least that. Well, let's see. This burning takes place in 1010, right? So, yeah. 10 years after the conversion. Mm-hmm. The death of Thrain happened far enough before the conversion that Hoskold Thrainson is fostered for some time by Kettle of Mork, I think and then by Njal and then mm-hmm. hoskal grows up and then he becomes the feteniskoldi which takes 2 years for Njal to pull off so yeah. right so we're actually cl-
0: we're actually closer to two decades the usual dating sets it at about 18 years yeah it's that long isn't it wow and scarpaven has been carrying a lump of thrain's jaw around all that time but you start <laughs> to get an idea of why everyone's a little creeped out by the guy
1: well, it's also an impressive bit of aiming. you mm. got to say that. And for some reason, in a saga with people being lifted onto spear points, magical queens, singing corpses, this moment gets singled out by Jonas Christensen as being implausible. <laughs> Who believes that Scarbhaven could hit Gunnar Lamberson in the eye with Thrain's molar at that range, and with such force that the eye was knocked from its socket? Yeah, I don't think plausibility is the major issue here.
0: <laughs> but uh in any case... Uh, that's the last the Burners see of Skarpathen. Right? The mm-hmm. two remaining Njalsons uh, grasp one another's arms and stamp out flames as they move to the center of the building to avoid the collapsing walls. But when they reach the center, Grimm is overcome by the smoke and falls to the ground dead. Skarpathen moves back over Wait a to-
1: minute. So Grimm's dead just like that?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. He he's never always, really
1: gets to come into his own, does he? He's always been the quiet one. It makes sense mm-hmm. he wouldn't make a big fuss about dying. I know, but the casual matter-of-factness of of it is a little abrupt for the modern reader. Oh, He's just there, and then he's
0: not. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, I had a student a few years back who was shocked when I referred to Grimm's death in class discussion. He completely missed that one line, and so he assumed that Grimm had escaped the burning somehow.
1: Yeah, but as we've said before, this really is in character for saga writers. To drop information into the narrative with a literary equivalent of a thud, and then expect (laughs) you to understand the significance of what's happened. Mm -hmm. In this case, Grimm's death is terrible in its own right, but... It also means that Scarpathen is now alone in the flames. True. Everybody else is either dead or unconscious and dying. Mm -hmm. And so
0: Skarpathen tries to make his way to the hall's end, but without warning, the roof collapses in on him, and he's pinned down under the burning beams.
1: Yeah. This part's brutal. And the author's not pulling any punches. Mm -hmm. We lose sight of Scarpathen once he's caught by the beams, but it's clear that he's burning to death.
0: Right. And as we said, it's rare to get an insider's account of a burning in the sagas. The author is pretty clearly using his point-of-view technique here to underline the horror of the burning. Even as the narrative shifts back to Flossie and the Burners waiting outside the rest of the night, we're left to ponder that last glimpse of Scarpathen trapped
1: under the burning roof and unable to move. And there's more horror to come in the morning when the smoldering ruins are finally examined. Absolutely. And don't forget, there's an elderly couple and a child in there among the victims. Yeah, this is a tricky moment for the author. I mean, the problem is that the narrative has to balance the evil deed of the Njalssons in killing Holskolt Threinsson with the narrative sympathy we're still asked to accept toward them. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the same time, the burning needs to be seen as a horrific and terrible act, but Flosi needs to be seen as a man who's generally admirable and whose actions make a kind of moral sense. Uh, Richard Allen says, The great achievement of this narrator is a work whose comment is not on the men who slew their foster brother, nor on the men who avenged that slaying with fire but on the society in which such things could come to pass. Well, I don't want to get too distracted here, but this is something we've been talking about for months. Right?
0: This is a much more cynical saga than many of the others we've read. I'm feeling a little cynical
1: myself at this point.
0: I can't really help you with that. Uh, but my point is that it's also the most supernatural section of the entire saga. Right? From the mm-hmm. prophecies before the burning, to the failure of Njal and Helgi's advice, to the events during and following the burning, some of which we're going to be talking about in the next section, The author is layering portents and spiritual mysticism onto the action here.
1: Suggesting that fate is at play.
0: Maybe. What I think is so fascinating is that it's indeterminate. We're left in no doubt that something of great significance has happened here, even beyond the deaths of Nal's family. But it's left to us and to the survivors to try to understand exactly what the burning ultimately means. Yes. It means for those who cause it or for those who survive it or just live in a reality where something like this can happen.
1: Well, I actually have some ideas about that. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, first, why don't we get into the aftermath of the fire? All right, I'm going to need another drink for this. Part 40, A Great and Evil Deed. From Njall's house one lived When fire burned the rest The sons of Sigfus, stalwart men, set the blaze Now the kin of Golnir is paid for the killing of brave Hoskult, the fire burned through the house, bright flames in the hall. So, at this point, the burning's done its work, and everyone in the house is dead or dying.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know that. Right? Flosie and the burners are forced to stand around all night until daybreak, just to be sure. And that's gotta be an
1: awkward few hours.
0: Yeah, without doubt, and it's only more awkward when a rider approaches in the first
1: light of morning. Right? This situation looks bad, and everyone knows it. Sure, but fortunately for the Burners, it's a friendly face. A cousin of and the Sigfersons named Germund.
0: Right. He asks how many notable people have died, and Flosi lists Njal, Bergthora, Helgi, Grimm, Skarpathen, Kari, Thord Carason, Thord Freeman, and others less familiar to us about whom we don't know
1: for sure. Well, German replies, You listed as dead one man who we know escaped. I talked with him myself this morning. And mm. then he tells them about meeting Kari Solundersen and loaning him a horse earlier. And now <laughs> no one knows where Kari's gone to. Right. Now, this is just great plotting
0: and pacing by our author, by the way. Yeah. We're now firmly in Flosie's point of view for this section. Like him, this is our first information about what happened to Kari. Right? Now we know he made it safely away from the area. But like Flosie we don't know exactly what he's up to or what his next move will be.
1: And that's exactly the problem with the burning. There's a lot of uncertainty that goes with it.
0: Really? I'd have gone with the problem being the appalling ethical and moral failure, but... Nah. Okay, okay it's uncertainty.
1: <laughs> Obviously that too. But I, I mean the problem for the burners. Mm-hmm. And, and uncertainty works in a couple of ways here. Not only is Flossie wrong about who was in the house when it burned, but he's also not sure how many people he and his men have killed. And in a culture which builds lawsuits and feud vengeances from the knowledge of who caused what specific wounds and damage to whom, this shrugging uncertainty about how many people just died is it's a real problem. That's a good point.
0: Uh, and there's also the fact that it wasn't all fighting men who were killed. Yeah. Uh, as Miller says, it would seem that the ferocity of the desired vengeance for the burning of Niall's farm owes some of its uncompromising thoroughness to the fact that an old man and woman and a young child died in the flames.
1: And in our final episode on this saga, we're going to see just how thorough that vengeance is. Yeah, Uh,
0: there's a definite sense that a line was crossed here. Whether or not Iceland can recover from this will depend in part on how the death of non-combatants is treated.
1: And let's not forget that the young child was Kari's son, Thord. Sure. Uh,
0: For the record, the eventual count of the dead is 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, Njal, Bergthora, all three Njalsons, Thord Karason, Thord Freeman, Sion, the old woman. Oh, that's right. There were actually two old
1: women killed. This Mm -hmm. isn't something for the Burners to be proud of.
0: No, it's pretty bad. Uh, And then there are three other unnamed men, probably friends or farmhands or loyal servants. Uh, That number, by the way, lines up pretty well with other sagas and sources, which usually list between 9 and 11 total dead in the Burning. Yeah, but not Kari. No. And Flossi has no illusions about the implications of Kari's survival. You've told us things that hold no peace for us for the man who escaped comes closest to Gunnar of Litherendi in all respects.
1: Yes, that's right. Mm. And everyone's pretty nervous after learning this, especially after Germund tells them about Kari's blue sword. Blue sword. Is this the one that can
0: detect the presence of goblins? Because, you know, useful.
1: No, no. (laughs) That's a different story. (laughs) It's the one that turned blue after exposure to flames of the burning. When Mm -hmm. Germund spotted this and pointed out that the sword's temper was probably ruined, Kari told him, I'll harden it again with the blood of the Sighfessons and the other burners.
0: <laughs> That's not a sheery thing to hear.
1: No, uh, And it's at
0: this point that Malof Kettleson tries to lift their spirits with the verse that you started this section with. Mm-hmm. right? Spinning the burning as a noble act by the stalwart Sighfessons. But Flossi's not having any of the Sighfessons' attempt to spin this as a great deed. We must find other things to boast of than the burning of Nyal, for there's no distinction in
1: that. Yeah, there's got to be an embarrassed silence following that whole thing. I think
0: so. Uh, Miller calls this the moment when one sees the Burner's sense of accomplishment and relief change to the sickening feeling of realizing what they're now in for.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. So, I mean, everyone's left standing around worrying about what's going to come next. Mm -hmm. And after a bit, Gloom Hledeson idly wonders out loud whether Scarpathen is dead yet. And from down in the still-burning ruins, they hear a verse being spoken. Gun of gold will not hold back the gushing tears from her brow over the sparring of spears of the spirited shield warrior. When the allies of the edge exulted in the slaughter, I boldly sing this song, and spears tried in wounds cried out.
0: And that's the last straw. Uh, The men aren't sure whether the verse was spoken by Scarpathan or not, and whether he was alive or dead when he spoke it. But they're not too interested in investigating further, especially now that they know Kari's out there
1: somewhere gathering a force against them. Yeah, the vast majority of the Burners now plan to retreat to Flossi's compound and remain together for a while rather than risk being Mm. picked off one by one. Well, that's just smart strategy. Yeah, but they are awfully afraid of a single man. As of just a couple hours earlier, Kari's alone, badly burned, probably half naked. Uh, mm-hmm. They've got a several dozen men all armed. Why should they be so right. afraid? Well, but Kari's out and spreading the
0: word, especially now that he's borrowed a horse. Yeah. Right? Not that the plume of smoke and ash over Berthusfjall wasn't a clue
1: something bad had happened, but Kari knows exactly who's to blame. Sure, but there are two strategies here. The Burners can try to intercept Kari, or they can go into hiding. Um, I think they're definitely going to choose the more cautious option. Well, okay, but they're not going straight to Flossi's place. They've got a little score to settle first. Oh, right. Yeah, Ingald of Keldur. Yeah, so remember, is the uncle of Halskold Jalsson, the one who promised to join Flossi's confederacy, but then backed out when his sister Hrodni shamed him for turning on Yol. Exactly. And so the burners decide to make a little stop on the way home. They do. um, And, you know, he's the one that spoiled the surprise, so... hmm Yeah. And this is not going to be one of Flossi's finest moments. No, it's not. Which uh, is weird to you... say after a, he burns a house full right. of people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the the Burners find Ingyald riding toward them as they ride toward his house, but he's on the other side of the Ranga River. Mm-hmm. After a few insults are exchanged, Flosi yells to Ingyald, Just stay where you are if you're not a coward, and I'll direct a message your way. That sounds like a really good reason to move. You see, this is why you're not an Icelandic warrior. Uh, well, it's also why I'm still alive and relatively unblemished. Well, fair enough. You're a pretty man. <laughs> Uh, Flossi grabs a spear from his nephew, Thorstein Kolbinson, and flings it at Ingjald. Mm. Ingjald doesn't move, and the Why? spear impales his shield in his thigh before sticking
1: in his saddle. This is like Icelandic chicken. Yeah, well, but from the narrative point of view, what's important is that he didn't flinch. Mm-hmm. And then he calls out, I call that a scratch, not a wound. Yeah, now that's significant from a legal perspective, right? A wound needs compensation, whether in honor or in payment. Mm. A scratch is beneath notice. Right. I, I think this is a performance of contempt. We already mm-hmm. know that Ingild is worried about having all these men against him, but he's making a point of showing his unconcern here. And he isn't through demonstrating his contempt for Flossi. Now you stay where you are, if you're not a softy. And he hurls the spear back at Flossi.
0: Right. Uh, but Flossi is either less brave or more intelligent than Ingeld, mm-hmm. Because when he sees the spear coming straight at him, he dodges. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, his nephew Thorstein is still right behind him. And the spear spikes him through the waist and kills him.
1: Uh, so mm. Flossi flinched. Right. And it got his nephew killed. Yeah. Not counting the few men who died at the farmhouse. Thorstein's the first of the burners to die. And it's obviously not a great moment for Flossi.
0: No, it's, it's pretty awful, actually. Uh, and to make things worse, Ingyal then gallops away. And they don't really have any chance of catching him from across the river. Mm-hmm. So now there are at least two men at large who
1: know the identities of everyone who took part in the burning of Njal and his family. But there's not a lot they can do about it, at least right now. They're mm-hmm. still worried about being caught near the scene of the crime, so they ride on.
0: And they're right to be worried. As they ride up to higher elevations, they can see groups of men
1: riding back and forth from the local settlements to the site of the burning. And even worse for them, other groups of men on horseback fanning out in a search pattern. Right. The burners are being
0: hunted. Uh, they can't do anything more for the moment, and so they flee to Flossie's farm. Flosi remains there until winter and never boasts to anyone of what he and the Burners have done.
1: Well, he doesn't exactly have a lot to brag about. Sure. Um, but what about Ingyal? We left him escaping into the woods.
0: Right. now, is an interesting case. Uh, he's one of the figures we talked about a few episodes back. Right, He's got an entire story arc that goes on in the background of this saga. And it's easy to tune out all of that and only pay attention to the main story. But the richness of Njal's saga is that someone like Ingjald has his own plotline.
1: Well, at this point, Ingjald's been really close to betraying Nyal, but his sister's mm. guilt trip changed his mind. And now he's dealt with the consequences of turning his back on the other burners at the cost of a fairly serious leg wound.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and a little while later, that wound is going to get infected and require some serious medical attention. And in fact, Ingjald's going to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. Mm. So he does carry a price for his near-betrayal of Njal and his
1: betrayal of Flosi. Yeah. A metaphorical kind of reminder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But why was he even out in the open on the morning after he'd stiffed Flossie's pact? I mean, that's not a smart Mm -hmm. survival strategy. He had to know that there was a target on his back. Why go approach them? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, he's actually, he wasn't trying to meet up with them. He was actually off to catch up with a friend. Hmm. Part 41. Sifting Through the Ashes.
1: You know, when you end on a line like that and then go to part forty-one, I, I sort of expect the title to answer the question we just asked. Oh, sorry. Uh, Ingiald's riding to find Kari Selmunderson. See, was that so hard? I mean, why did we st- why did we stop there?
0: I cried a little inside, yes. No, uh, but the important part is that Ingiald finds Kari, who's been doing exactly what Flossi feared—riding around, making sure people know what happened.
1: So he's the one who's roused the district.
0: Right, although again that plume of smoke over Berthasville was helping too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Kari spent the night in his hiding place, space, hoping the Njalsons would make it out of the fire.
1: Okay, but also presumably just resting and saying "ouch" a lot. <laughs> I mean, remember he was actually on fire when he got out. He's probably in a lot of pain.
0: And that's valid. Uh, when Gjermund tells Flossi about seeing Kari, he did say that most of Kari's hair and clothes were burned off, mm-hmm. and he's looking for yeah, an he's aloe plant. Certainly yeah, well, he's not feeling great, yeah.
1: <laughs> but but he's also a man on a mission. And once he borrows a horse, he starts riding around the district. When he sees Ingyald... Looking,
0: looking, for, that, looking for that aloe. Yeah, like, Do you have an aloe <laughs> Ooh, plant? So- soothing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> when he sees Ingjald, they compare notes, and Kari's happy to hear that one burner is already dead. They continue mm-hmm. on to Hjalti Skegison's farm, where they organize the search for Flossi and the other burners. So Kari, Ingyald, Hjalti, and Morth Volgertsen all lead search parties, but... They can't find the burners.
0: Well, that's not surprising, since they've already lit out for Flossi's farmstead. Mm -hmm. But hang on, Morth Valgridsson? Oh yeah, he's back. And he's on Kari's side now. Right, now we hinted at this earlier, but this is one of the strangest shifts of the saga. Morth, the man whose cunning plans led to the downfall of Njal's entire family, is now allied with Kari against the burners who actually killed him. Yeah, and many of those burners are his relatives. Yep. Uh, now, as we said, the burners don't trust him because he was part of the murder of Hoskold, and he derailed their case against the Nialsons. But that's all the more reason to ask, so why does anybody trust him? And above all, why does Kari the Singed trust him? Uh, well, you know, necessity makes strange bedfellows, John. Not that strange. Uh, I know there are a number of ways to break down how this happens. Uh, Ian Maxwell says that Morth takes advantage of openings created by others. Yes. I think that's about right. Uh, it was true when he helped Gunnar's enemies defeat him. It was true when he followed his father's plan and led the Nielsens to kill Haskell Thransen, and it's true now. Sure. Ultimately, Moore's a survivor, not an ideologue. Changing sides is not a problem for him.
1: Okay, but that doesn't mean people just forget his past behavior. Kari and Hjalti both make a point of checking on Moore to make sure he's sticking to their program. But as Moore themselves says to Hjalti a little bitterly, have no doubt that I will be loyal to Kari in every way. For I must look out for myself.
0: Yeah, I get that, but it's still a little jarring to have him on the side of the Njalsen's friends now.
1: Yeah, I agree, but we'll be able to talk about that a little bit more next time. So let's uh see that? there it is. Let's get back to the story.
0: Okay. So Kari's friends can't find Flosi's men, and even with the help of Njal's nephews, Thorleaf Crow, Thorgrim the Tall, and Thorger Skoragir, there's nothing more they can do. Psst, go to Flossi's farm. <laughs> <laughs> they might be there.
1: Right. Well, there there is one important thing that they can do. They can return to Bergthor's Fall and, uh, and claim the bodies of the dead.
0: Right, and that's exactly what they do. Uh, Kari asks Hjalti to take charge of the men digging
1: through the rubble, since everyone will believe what you say about them. Yeah, this is a smart move by Kari. Hjalti's recognized as a supporter of Njal, but not an especially active one. He's Mm -hmm. probably the most neutral figure here, and he's a respected figure generally. Uh, His word's going to go a long way.
0: I think it's also a very human moment from Kari. It's one of the few
1: we get. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, don't forget, Kari's son is somewhere in that wreckage. Not to mention nearly all of his in-laws. Searching the still smoldering ruin for their bodies would be a lot to ask of anyone.
1: Oh, yeah, of course. But I meant, why do you say it's one of the the few human moments we get from Kari? I I thought you liked him.
0: I do. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to have to think seriously about him as a Thingman candidate when the ca- time comes. But what I meant was that as Kari becomes the center of the saga, which he will be from this point forward, he's deliberately hardening himself into an instrument of vengeance. Mm.
1: Well, th- yeah, there's something to that. Um, his life is going to be put on hold for years so that he can dedicate himself to the task of avenging this burning.
0: Exactly. That doesn't leave a lot of room for these humanizing touches that make Kari so appealing in the earlier parts of the saga. He's still a fascinating figure, but he's damaged now. Right? and Arguably, he's permanently changed by what we'd have to call his survivor's guilt.
1: Mm. You're making some pretty heavy claims for the text right now. We should be clear that the saga never really identifies Kari's grief or trauma as motivating factors. It comes across more logically. I mean, He's a man with a massive debt of honor to repay, and he intends to pay it in full.
0: Well, no, it's, it's not the kind of thing a saga author would ever say, but it comes through in Kari's actions. Right? He's a man obsessed— it's not hard to see his fury and relentlessness as a logical outcome of losing so many loved ones in a fire that he alone survived.
1: Well, while we've been talking, Hjalte's men have dug their way to the bed where Njall and Bergthora <laughs> laid themselves out. Is that your is that your
0: segue? That is
1: uh, <laughs> the ox hide that covered them. See, it's kind of weird to be joking when we're talking about uncovering well, these dead people.
0: They've been dead a long time, That's a thousand
1: <laughs> years ago. Yeah, if you haven't gotten over it so- by now, too soon. The, uh, the oxide that covered them is still in place, shriveled from the heat of the fire. And underneath, Njal, Bergthora, and Kari's son, Thord, are lying dead, but relatively unburned.
0: Right, little Thord did lose a finger to the flames when it stuck out of the oxide, but otherwise they're perfectly preserved. And Hjalti says, Bergthora's body is as I would have expected, though well preserved. Njal's face and body seem to me so radiant... But I've never seen a man's body as radiant as this. Hjalti's voice has gotten a lot more noble sounding since he was
1: calling Freya a bitch at the assembly.
0: Well, he's grown up some. That was a long time ago.
1: I guess so. <laughs> okay, so this is hagiography hey, now. This is Hjalti's deliberate attempt to beatify Njal's remains, right?
0: Yeah, it does read that way, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I don't know how else to take it.
0: We should explain that really briefly. Uh, saints' remains in the Middle Ages were identifiable by several features a resistance to decomposition and a pleasing odor being two of the better known ones. But radiance, or more to the point, seeming lit from within, could also denote sanctity.
1: And often, the first eyewitness account of a saint's body sets the tone for how it will be perceived. Uh, In this Mm -hmm. case, nothing comes of Hjalti's description in that there's no cult of Saint Njal formed, but it still serves to suggest to a 13th century audience that Njal was an exemplary Christian and that his death is somehow a kind of martyrdom.
0: Yeah, I think the text has actually been working on that for a while. Uh, A lot of the problems we've had over whether Njal is resisting or assisting his doom through his actions, they might be resolved if we remember that his author has a much deeper knowledge of Christian practice and saints' cults to draw on than Njal's contemporaries would have had.
1: Right, and these are signals for the saga's audience, not Hjalti's followers. Definitely.
0: And I find it particularly interesting that Njal's face is included in the saintly beauty of his uncorrupted body. Remember, this is the beardless face that caused so many to question Njal's manliness, and now it's more evidence of his radiant Christian beauty.
1: Yeah, I agree that that seems to be what the author is trying for, but it's hard to reconcile with everything that's come before it in the saga.
0: Yeah, no, but quite a few readers treat Njal as a compromise figure between the pagan past and the Christian future. Uh, Lars Lownroth and Margaret Clooney's Ross both see Njal as a noble heathen, uh, and Lonroth actually uses that term, right? He's not a completely Christian figure, but he's not tarred with pagan sensibilities either.
1: Right. I mean, Njal is actually a much more complicated figure than most saints' lives prefer for their subjects. Uh, we'll talk mm-hmm. more about this in the Judgment episode, I think, but he's at least somewhat devious. He's a cunning lawyer. He counsels violent revenge, and his relationship with his sons is really problematic.
0: <laughs> Maybe the problem is that we've been privy to too much of Njal's life. Yeah. Right. His biography isn't necessarily that of a saint, But more often than not, saints' biographies are written after their deaths, and they work backward from their death, right, with an eye toward justifying their cultic status.
1: And Njal's life is told from start to finish, even though the name Burnt Njal, as part of the title in some of the manuscripts, does set up reading his life as a path toward his death. His life is a little smudged for a saint, and it's possible to read him as more than a little malevolent if you want to.
0: Yes, it is. Have, have you seen any of this newer strain of scholarship? Uh, it tends to read Njal's actions as a deliberate attempt to get his own sons killed as a kind of feud vengeance for the death of hospital Reins.
1: Yeah, I have been looking at some of that, actually. Um, but I, I think we should move forward and save some of that for the judgment section. Maybe we can. Uh, fair enough. We could probably, you know, debate yeah. his character there.
0: Yeah. yeah. Consider that a teaser, folks. Uh, some fo- some people think Njal did all this on purpose. Uh, but for now, let's get back to the
1: excavation. All right, so once everyone's done admiring Njal's flawless body, they start digging around looking for the others. Now, this is a bit more haphazard since they don't really know where everyone is. They eventually mm-hmm. find the burned remains of Grimm, Thord Freeman, Sion, and the three other men.
0: Right, and obviously Helgi's headless body is outside the house.
1: Hmm. That's right. Uh, presumably the head's there too, but uh, mm-hmm. but when the diggers find Skarpathen, everyone gathers around to take in what they see.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think we should just let the saga tell this part. Okay. Scarpathan had been up against the gable wall, and his legs were burned off almost to the knees, but the rest of him was unburned. He had bitten into his lip. His eyes were open and not swollen. He had driven his axe into the wall so hard that the blade was buried, and it hadn't lost its temper. Scarpathan had folded his arms in a cross, and they found two marks on him, one between his shoulders and one on his chest. And in both places, a cross had been burned. Everyone said it was easier to be in the presence of the dead Skarpathen than they had expected, for no one was afraid of him.
1: Mm. There's a lot of symbolism to unpack here. Mm -hmm. The fact that Skarpathen is half-burned, the crosses, got the axe, his open eyes, on and on in there. I mean, how long have we got here? Are we going to do another episode on Skarpathen?
0: Not long enough. Uh, We've been at this for a while. People have lives, man. Not us, maybe, but other people have lives. All right,
1: well, let's just each pick one thing, okay?
0: Okay, go for it.
1: Well, I want to talk about the staging of the corpse. Uh,
0: you mean the way they're treating it or the way
1: it's found? No, the way it's found. I mean, Uh-oh. more to the point, the way then chooses to be found, because I think he chooses uh-huh. to set himself up this way. Uh, his uh-huh. eyes are open but not swollen, which means he hasn't cried even though he had to bite through his mm-hmm. lip to keep from screaming.
0: Well, his legs were burned off. I mean, a bit of screaming might not have been inappropriate.
1: (laughs) Well, we don't know whether he was alive when that happened or not. Right. But, yes, it would have been inappropriate. Not for you Mm -hmm. or me, maybe, but Scarpe then died with no one but enemies to hear him. He wasn't the sort to give his enemies the satisfaction of hearing him admit pain.
0: Right. Well, it's another version of Ingjald calling his leg wound a scratch. Registering contempt for your enemies... By insisting on your manly superiority to the injury they've done, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, more or less. But Scarpathian's eyes are also open, which is an interesting detail. Remember the mm-hmm. death of Hoskuld Nelson. I do remember that. Uh, Scarpathian closed
0: Hoskuld's eyes, and in doing so, he took up the duty of revenge.
1: Right, and it's not said who closes his eyes, but the closest person to a relative here is Kari, so that probably is a good guess that that's who'll do it. Uh
0: huh. It's also another shrewd piece of plotting and staging by our author, right? Thordir, uh, Njal's nephew isn't present at the recovery of the bodies which helps to keep clear that it's Kari who's feeling the greatest responsibility for revenge.
1: Mm-hmm. That's true and I'm glad you mentioned Thorger because there's another piece of the way Scarbhaven arranged himself that's important. We're told mm-hmm. he had driven his axe into the wall so hard that the blade was buried and it hadn't lost its temper.
0: Right he protected his axe from the flames so that it could be passed on to someone else.
1: Yes. Presumably someone who would take up the duty of avenging him. Right. Uh, that maybe should be Kari, but Kari fights with swords, not a big axe. And anyway, mm-hmm. he's already as committed as anyone possibly could be. So right. Kari decides that the axe should stay in the family. He later gives it to Thorger Skoriger, who's the most prominent man in the family now that Njal and Skarpathen are dead. Right, which binds Thorgir to the duty of avenging the Burning. I mean, it's not like he wasn't already going to be involved. I mean, he says mm-hmm. at one point that he and his brothers will likely be the primary litigants in the lawsuit over the Burning, but this serves as a personal appeal from than and from Kari that Thorgeir be ready to force the Burners to pay in blood.
0: Nice. Uh, now, I'm going to point out that last line. Uh, it was easier to be in the presence of the dead Scarpathen than anyone had expected. We talked about the strain Scarpathan felt under the weight of his fate, and how that registered as a terrifying thing within this culture. Mm -hmm. Scarpathan was already scary and intimidating, and the increasing horror of his humorless grin became really unsettling toward the end of his life.
1: Oh, it didn't help with public relations at the all thing, that's for sure.
0: It's true. Uh, And those were neutral or hostile parties for the most part. These men gathered around Scarpathan's body are his close friends. In Kari's case, his best friend and brother-in-law, And they're surprised not to be frightened of his corpse.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's hard to tell if that's a statement about Skarpathan having found peace in death, or if it's just a last tribute from the author about how terrifying a man Skarpathan actually was.
0: Yeah. Uh, And either way, there's still the work of avenging him and everyone else in the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kari delivers Skarpathan's axe to Thorger Skorger and spends the winter at the home of Asgrim Alida Grimson, Njal's old friend and the father of Njal's foster son,
1: Thorhall. Well, Thorhall has an interesting story to tell, but since he's going to be a major player in the next episode, I, why don't we save him for later?
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, so over the winter, Osgrim keeps busy uh, firming up friendships with people like Gizur the White and Morth uh, in preparation for what's shaping up to be an epic lawsuit at the All Thing. But Kari can't sleep and just sits around the farm. One night, Osgrim wakes up to find Kari sitting alone in the dark. When Osgrim questions him, Kari replies, Sleep shuns my eyes, all of the Elmstring, all night. I recall the man who craved shields set with rings. In autumn, the blazing sword trees burn Njal at home. Since then, the harm done me has dwelt in my mind.
1: Mm. I really like that one. There's more evidence for that uh, traumatic emotional injury you talked about before. It's Kari's mind that has been most disrupted by his injuries and losses. And he's retreating into himself as he contemplates everything he's lost. It's one of those rare moments where you see actual psychology at work in the sagas. Right.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, when they do psychology, they tend to do it like this, with a very deft hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, understated, as things always are in the sagas. But, you know, you're left in no doubt about the, the damage that's been suffered. Yes. Yes. Uh, And I think we can pretty clearly break that verse into two separate eulogies. One for Skarpathen, the man who craved shields, and one for Njal burned in his home. Mm. No reference to the lost son then?
1: Uh, Not in this verse, but we can assume that's
0: part of what he's grieving over and we'll see more of that later on.
1: Well, let me ask, what about poor Grim, poor silent Grim? No one (laughs) left to weep for poor Grim Njalsen?
0: His wife maybe? Does she
1: even remember him?
0: Uh, Although we should say even she was more interested in trying to smuggle Helgi out of the house.
1: Yeah. Sorry, Grimm. Anyway, with that admission of Kari's overwhelming grief, I think it's appropriate to leave the story for now. Mm-hmm. Next time, we'll see what comes of Kari's ruminations and how Thorhall Asgrimson responds to the news of Njal's death and the biggest and most dangerous lawsuit the All Things ever seen.
0: Right. Uh, for now, let us know what you think of the story so far. Any questions you might have or any limericks you might have composed about your favorite saga heroes and heroines. <laughs> Or any predictions for when we're finally going to finish this monster and get back to reviewing all the sagas, and not just this one, forever.
1: You have to tell people where to reach us. Not it. Oh, uh, seriously? Okay. Well, if you do have any <laughs> thoughts you want to share with us, you can leave a comment on the WordPress or Podbean pages for the show, or join in the conversation on our Facebook page for Saga Thing Podcast, or on Twitter at Pod. Uh, or you can use a burnt stick to write a message in the snow. I can't promise
0: we'll get it, but it'd be a lovely tribute for Nyal and his family.
1: There are, of course, other methods of writing in the snow, but we will prefer the burnt stick in this case. Let's stick with the burnt stick, yes. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon with what we hope will be the penultimate episode of Niall's Saga. Bye for now. Yeah, so the next, uh, here we are at that time of the night. What is going on? What is happening? At some point in the night, my tongue starts to get a little tired.